It's Megacon from March 15th through the 17th, 2013 at the Orange County Convention Center in Orlando, Florida. Megacon is the Southeast's largest comic book, science fiction, fantasy, anime, gaming, toys, multimedia event. The showroom has over 110,000 square feet of exhibitor space. Meet your favorite comic book artists, get autographs from your favorite celebrities, enter a costume contest, visit continuous anime viewing rooms, view the indie film festival, and so much more. You don't want to miss it. One-day tickets are $24.49 in advance, $30 at the door. Or go for all three days for just $58.04 in advance or $60 at the door. I, Scott Gardner, will be there Saturday, March 16th from open to close, wandering the floor in my Two True Freaks t-shirt. Again, that's Megacon, March 15th through the 17th, 2013 at the Orange County Convention Center, Hall D, that's 9800 International Drive, Orlando, Florida. Be there. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Hang on a minute. Who put you in charge? And who the hell are you anyway? I'm the Doctor. I'm a Time Lord. I'm from the planet Gallifrey in the constellation of Casterberus. I'm 903 years old, and I'm the man who's going to save your lives and all six billion people on the planet below. You got a problem with that? No. In that case... Hello, Z! Would you like a jelly baby? Welcome to another oddly named episode of Who True Freaks. Yes, the show that definitely brings you the WTF. I am one of your rotating guests on, well, I guess one of your rotating guest hosts on the show, Sean Engel. And today we've got a wonderful cast here that's going to be bringing you a wonderful episode of Doctor Who. 
Let me first introduce, uh, pull this up on my Skype list, uh, Mr. Andrew Leyland from the UK. Hey, Andrew. Hey, man. How you doing? Not bad. Also on the phone, we have the hair metal hero himself, Mr. Christopher Tyler. Hey, guys. All right. Uh, coming in from her own show, Hope of All Trades, and probably as sleepy as I am this morning, Mrs. Hope or Miss Hope Mullinax. Hey, guys. Hi. Nice to have you, Hope. And uh, first time here on Two True Freaks, uh, all the way from, uh, well, not, I guess the UK, but not uh, where Andy is, Mr. Dave Walker of Flash Legacies. Hey, Dave, how are you doing? I'm not doing too bad. How are you? And uh, today we are going to be taking a look at a uh, newer episode of Doctor Who. Uh, this time out, uh, we're coming in from season four of the new series, and we're going to be taking a look at the episode Partners in Crime, the well, I guess would you call it the season opener of season four? Because technically Voyage of the Damned was like the Christmas special. So Yeah, Voyage of the Damned isn't considered part of series four. Over here they are specifically mentioned that the Christmas episode is a special and then the new series kicks off. So this is the season four premiere. Okay. Unless you're on Netflix. Yeah. Well, Unless yeah. you're on Netflix, yeah. <laughs> well, Netflix is always wonky like that. But <clears throat> as I've finally recovered my voice, which, you know, whether that's a good thing or not, I'm going to go ahead and uh, give a little synopsis of the show, and then we'll start out with our discussion. So, Partners of Crime was uh, air-dated on April 5th, 2008. I'm assuming that's in the UK. The writer here was Russell T. Davies. Uh, the director was Dr James Strong. Producer was Phil Collinson, and not Phil Collins, but Phil Collinson. Uh, executive producers were Russell T. Davies and Julie Gardner. We've got a cast of David Tennant as the Doctor, Catherine Tate returning as Donna Noble, Sarah Lancashire as Miss Foster, Bernard Cribbins as Wilford Mott, and Jacqueline King as Sylvia Noble. The story begins with a very Scooby-Doo type opening, where both Donna Noble and the Doctor are investigating Adipose Industries, a company that's marketing a weight loss pill that has the odd slogan of, The Fat Just Walks Away. After viewing a press meeting from the company's CEO, one Miss Foster, our two protagonists invade this call center of Adipose Industries to get a list of names of people who have taken the pill. Both the doctor and Donna head out to interview separate people who have taken the pill and find that the claims that the Adipose made are true, both figuratively and literally. The man the doctor is interviewing says that every night the alarm to his house goes off due to the cat door triggering the motion sensor outside, even though he doesn't own a cat. The woman Donna is interviewing literally dissolves into a number of tiny white fat looking or into a number of tiny white little looking son of a bitch i cannot talk to <laughs> adorable little fat people yes <laughs> people made of fat yes adorable no. fat people made of fat who yes. <laughs> cheerfully waved goodbye to donna after she witnesses a crawl out of the window of the woman who just disintegrated into nothingness perplexed by all of this donna runs into the street to try and find the little creatures only to miss the doctor, who was also trying to do the same thing. Saddened, Donna returns home to her nagging mother and stargazing grandfather and laments to her grandfather about her decision not to join the doctor in his travels. Her grandfather consoles her, and Donna tells him that if he ever sees a blue box while watching the skies to come get her. Also, to probably have his eyes checked and make sure that he hasn't been smoking anything. At the same time, the doctor is investigating the gold pill that's given to every person that orders the adipose medicine. It appears that it's alien origin, in origin, and the doctor heads back to the offices. 
Listening, listening in from a window washer scaffold, the doctor hears the plans of Foster, who is using the pills to collect the fat from the people and turn it into the little adipose babies. However, he's distracted by the arrival of Donna, and the two share a moment of surprise at both of them being there until it's broken up by Foster and her security guards noticing the obvious back and forth between them. The punchy punchy run run begins with the doctor trying to tell Foster to stop lest he report her to the Shadow Proclamation. Foster is undeterred by the threat and threat and plans to use the device in the building to kill uh, one million of the people who are taking the adipose pills in order to bird the babies for all the adipose parents. She almost gets away with it if it weren't for the doctor and that meddling Donna Noble, who stopped the complete disintegration of one million Londoners but allow a few thousand adipose babies to be quote-unquote born. As the alien ship comes by to pick up the birth adipose and Miss Foster, the doctor tries to save her as he knows that she broke intergalactic law and the aliens will try and get rid of her. Foster doubts the doctor's words until the tractor beam that was lifting her into space suddenly cuts out, letting her fall to the London streets. Crisis averted and one million Londoners a few kilos lighter, the doctor and his new companion Donna head off to a new adventure, but not before doing a flyby and waving to Donna's grandfather Wilf. The end. And, That's a nice summary. <laughs> uh, yeah, I decided, you know, since I mucked it up last time, to uh, try and actually write a summary and speak it. So, again, your your uh, decision whether or not you want to hear me talking or, you know, is, is your own. So, there you go. Guys, this was a great episode. Uh, it's a good way to start the show, and it's a nice, uh, at least for me, I enjoyed seeing Donna Noble back. Um I didn't catch a lot of season three when it actually came out, and I actually just went back and rewatched Runaway Bride. And I know in the UK there was a bit of controversy about having Donna Noble come back. Um, some people were kind of um, upset with that. Uh, do you want to address that, Andy? Uh, well, largely it came about because Catherine Tate was a huge star at the time that this show aired. The Catherine Tate show was the hottest comedy on the earth. It was one of those catch catch based based catch phrase based comedy shows that pretty much everyone was quoting, kind of like what Little Britain would become. And she'd already done the Christmas special, and her performance in the Christmas special had been mixed. Mm-hmm. The reaction to that, let's say, um, a lot of people saying all she did was shout her way through it. So when it was announced that she was going to be the regular companion, it didn't go down terribly well with, you know, the hardcore fans who were very vocal. Ultimately, I think she ended up being the best of David Tennant's companions. And season four ended up being the best of Tennant's seasons because what everyone was not taking into account was that Tate was a Shakespearean trained actress who went into comedy as opposed to a comedy actress who was trying to do, <clears throat> excuse me, straight drama. And in this episode, I don't know if any of you have read The Writer's Tale, which was the book Russell T. Davis released about his time on Doctor Who. No. He talks about this episode, the character of um, Carter, Penny Carter, was originally going to be the new companion. And they'd even sent out casting notes to uh, audition new actresses for the role of a new companion when Catherine Tate made it clear she would like to come back. And then the whole negotiation process began as, would she come back as a one-off? And when she said, no, I want to, I'd like to do a series because she'd had such a good time doing um, the Christmas special, 
that they brought about for the entire run. And what Davis did, he said the first thing he said he had to do in the first episode of the season was tone her character down. He said it was fine for her to be the shouty fish wife for the Christmas special. But for a regular series, he acknowledged that that would get old very quick. So the very first scene he wrote was the scene between her and her dad, where they're on the, um, they were just watching the stars. And ultimately that had to be refilmed when the actor playing Donna's dad passed away and they recast it with her granddad. So again, like, like you asked, it wasn't greeted un- uniformly with praise, but having seen the episode, everyone did about turn. The other thing about this one as well, though, is Sarah Lancashire is a huge star over here. She started out in Coronation Street and then once quit in Coronation Street, which is like the, the top rated soap over here. Once she quit that, she managed to avoid the trap that a lot of soap actors have fell into. Is she, she went straight into other projects and has completely avoided being typecast. So she, she did an excellent job of just moving from prestige project to prestige project. So the fact that she was in it also garnered a lot of publicity at the time. Was that too long of an answer for you? No, that was a great answer. Uh, Dave, uh, did you kind of see the same thing over, you know, did you kind of have the same feel? What was your feeling about uh, Donna? Yeah. Um, well, I wasn't too sure about her at first. Um, I didn't mind her too much in the uh, Christmas special. Uh, but as Andy said, with her comedy show, um, it was probably... I didn't really watch it, so I probably wasn't as against it as my dad was. He really didn't like her at, at all for the whole of the series, even. So, yeah, I did see it. But this episode basically kind of, it, I guess, took away all of the brashness she had. She's mellowed out. She's tried to move on after what happened to her. And she's found something that she wants to do now. And it's find a doctor. I don't know if that made sense. Sorry. Oh, it made perfect sense. Uh, other, uh, you know, uh, Chris, what did you think or hope? I'll, uh, I'll jump in. Um, it was, see, I've, I'm pretty much only caught up on just the, the relaunch stuff. Um, my history with, uh, you know, the original series is, is woefully limited. But um, I'll be honest, it was nice to see somebody that wasn't a wafy 20-year-old girl that was lusting after the doctor be his companion. Um, and I, it, I had no problem with it. I think she's hilarious and I don't know her from her own show. Um, the fact that she's a ginger doesn't hurt either. Um, but, uh, when, uh, you're watching it, you just, she's just fun to watch in this one. Um, and you know, the, the stuff that we learned just about her and her family, what it, how it comes into play during the rest of this season and the rest of the, the run of, of David Tennant's doctor is just unbelievably great TV. So oh, yeah. hope, did you have any, uh, did you have any opinions on Donna, uh, especially as compared to the other uh, companions they've had uh, previously on the new series of who I initially liked Donna because I actually started with, with season three outside of uh, girl with the fireplace, which was the first episode I ever watched of doctor who. Um, and then I saw blink and I was like, this is awesome. So I bought season three first, like a smart kid. So Donna <laughs> was actually the first companion I saw and I just thought she was so funny. And I was really upset that she didn't come back. And so when she came back in season four, I was really excited, especially because like, I just did not like Martha 
really. Um, and I didn't really know Rose because I hadn't seen season two or one yet. So I knew they were talking about Rose, but I didn't know who she was. And Martha just really annoyed me for constantly throwing herself at the Doctor. And I saw her as a weak character. Well, and it's... so um, I was really excited to have Donna back and, and get away from that because I, I think sometimes best friends relationships – are so much stronger than romantic relationships. Well, that was one of the things that kind of uh, not really annoyed me, but kind of upset me about the first couple of series of Doctor Who was they tried to make it more like a soap opera. They tried to make it a romantic thing. I mean, I think it probably stems from the fact that Christopher Eccleston and David Tennant were more photogenic actors than what they had got to do previous Doctor Who's. Or doctors um, in the in America, we're used to calling him Doctor Who because we just don't get it. Uh, but <laughs> they, what they did was uh, they got these photogenic actors, and previously they had people like Tom Baker and Patrick Trotton and uh, Pertwee and uh, Hartnell, people who were interesting characters, but weren't always who were very charismatic, but weren't always that comely. They weren't that uh, effective. Uh, you didn't get the sort of uh, sexual desire with them. They were interesting characters that you wanted to be around, but the romance angle wasn't there. And I think when Russell T. Davies took over the show, he decided to make the Doctor more of an attractive character that people would latch on to because of the visual aspect of them, because they actually looked good first, rather than because they were interesting characters. And I think for for my money, the show kind of suffered in that. Uh, I never really warmed to Rose, and uh, I've seen very little of the uh, Martha Jones shows. So the whole idea of the Doctor having this great romance with this one character just kind of fell flat for me. But uh, well, go ahead, Andy. Go on, sorry. No, no, no I, was I was going to say, I, I agree entirely with what you just said, and you see an example of that in this episode. Uh, the scene where the, they're in the, the phone centre and the girl who the doctor convinces to help him flirts with him mm-hmm. and gives him her phone number. It's hard to imagine anyone doing that with, with John Pertwee or William Hartnell. Yes. But at the same time, <laughs> you've got to give Davis all the credit in the world for constructing a storyline that got girls watching the show. Mm-hmm. I know my daughter grew up with Rose. Rose was her doctor's companion. And to this day, she still loves Rose. And she loves that entire storyline. And while I'm not saying girls wouldn't watch it if it was just pure science fiction, when he brought it back and did add that little soapy element, it did so much for the show's profile. That's not to say that this series, where we got rid of that, suffers. Which is why I I think, as a boy, this is the best of Tenet series, because we don't have any of that. We've not got any of the mushy stuff that we're not interested in anyway. We've got a companion who will challenge him in the way that his best companions did, because that gives the stories more places to go. And especially seeing as by this point, Tennant's doctor was damaged, and Donna does mm-hmm. an awful lot to heal him over the course of this series, which is why what happens to Donna at the end of this season is so gut-wrenching. Mm-hmm. <sighs> and destroys the Doctor because we've seen him. Donna fixes him. After everything that happened with Rose, Donna achieves what Martha couldn't and fixes him. And then in the last episode that he has to do that to her just completely destroys him. And I thought that was a wonderful character arc, not only for the the actress, but also for the the writers to actually incorporate. 
I think um, if Donna hadn't fixed it, if it had been Martha or even, well, if it had been Martha and Donna's place at the end of season four and we lost her that way, I don't think the specials would have been so, sorry, I'm still waking up. Um, (laughs) I guess impacting is the word I'm trying to say. Um, Like we wouldn't have had Waters on Mars and stuff like that because I think losing Donna is what broke him more than losing any of the companions in the new series up to that point. Yeah, I, I agree entirely. It's what happened with Donna that destroyed him and ultimately led to the Tenth Doctor's downfall, more than what happened with Rose. But uh, we might as well go ahead and mention this, and this is sort of a spoiler for the episode, and it was kind of surprising, I'm assuming, when the episode actually aired, that uh, Rose did show up in a little bit part at the end of the show, uh, thus sort of you know, uh, bringing forth a story element that was going to be... Uh, sort of tapped on throughout the entire season and basically uh, brought into the uh, final episode. So um, what did you guys think about that? Uh, after after the whole thing of Rose being uh, taken to that other dimension and the Doctor never being able to supposedly interact with her again, what did you guys think about the idea that uh, Rose was, for whatever reason, back? I, uh, if you think it's just going to be a one-off when you're watching it, but this episode, you don't realize it at the time, introduces every single story arc that's going to happen throughout the entire season. Mm. Donna men- mentions the bees disappearing, which you think is just the most yeah. random shit someone could say. But it comes back again and again. Um, the the matron mentions the, the planet Adipose is gone, which, again, okay, well, we don't know what happened, but you find yeah, out. That was, uh, that was a wonderful line, wasn't it? It's just... How does the planet go missing? <laughs> uh, you know, she cleans uh, up politics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then uh, just every everything gets set up. Uh, Wilfred Mott becomes honestly one of my favorite characters in the entire yeah. rewatch. I mean, he's just that's the kind of guy you want to pal around with and have for your grandfather. He's a. Uh, I mean, nobody's happier than he is when. Donna is in the TARDIS at the end of the episode than him, but uh, everything gets set up in this episode. There's even an Atlas sticker on the front of the oh, taxi oh, that shows up. I didn't up. even notice that. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. In, in the taxi that's going to pick up the woman Donna interviews, there is an Atmos sticker in the front window. The thing that, that Chris was just saying, going back a second there, about the, the grandfather, Wilfred Mott, the fact that he was a last-minute addition as well mm-hmm. is even Do- more remarkable. Was his character named originally in Voyage of the Damned, or do you think it was just named after they had this series sorted? From Both. What I... ah. yeah. In the writer's tale, it's in the in the script for Voyage of the Damned, he was named Stan, and then the filming of Partners in Crime occurred before the Christmas special aired, meaning they went back yeah. and they changed the end credits. Because he obviously with the end of the Christmas specials, they always throw in the, here's everything that's going to happen in the next season, pretty much. Mm. You know, so you see a lot of what's already been filmed for that. So he shows up once or twice. So didn't know whether or not that, that was in the script originally, or if that came about once he was added to the cast, no, you know, cause he, he is credited later. there. That's yeah. They changed the credits afterwards. Yeah. I, I don't know how easier. I don't know how long into the uh, filming of the show that they had they had gone until uh, the guy who played Donna's dad passed away. So if it was last minute, it you can't really tell because it does 
blend somewhat seamlessly. The deleted scenes on the DVD only have the scenes from this episode with the original actor. So that kind of implies that they weren't far into production of the series when he passed away. Well, and yeah. uh, to, to be honest, for my money, uh, the fact that they uh, bought or brought Bernard Cribbins in to play Donna's grandfather, uh, it works a lot better. I like him more as a character, uh, even though the actor who played her father in the, uh, in the Runaway Bride was fine. I think uh, the sort of Wilford character brings in it brings in the sort of uh, aspect of how we feel if we were to see, we as viewers were to see the doctor and see his annex, you know, it, it kind of, it kind of puts us in the show uh, in our, in, in our uh, characters as just viewers of the show. So uh, I really enjoy the character of Wilf. And I think it sets up a completely different dynamic um, because there's something about how, grandparents relate to their children opposed to parents relating to their children because mm-hmm. even if donna's father was like the most supporting dad in the world and was like super open and super positive wilfred can be just as supportive but it's more from an experience point of view and since we know that donna was in um uh, uh, the uh, runaway bride and he's not there anymore we can assume that these characters just recently had a loss of their own as well um because he completely vanished and so um, I, I think it sets up a, a new, different dynamic that I think Wilfred is even more supportive. Because do we know if Wilfred was the dad's father or was is Wilfred's Sylvia's dad? I think he's seeing what Sylvia. I, I take it as he sees what Sylvia has become, and it's only, like he'll still love Sylvia because that's his little girl and stuff like that, and his daughter. But I think he really does not want Donna to become that. So I think that makes him extra supportive because he doesn't want her to become her mom. Definitely. It may even be that he moved in after the dad died to kind of help out around the house, you know, to help them cope even. But obviously that's not said or anything. Well, it is kind of implied because you it's not even mentioned in the show, but if you saw the series before and you saw the runaway bride, you realize that the father's not there and this grandfather's there. So you've got an idea that there's been change in the noble household. So uh, it, it works out. And that's a very good point. Oh, I didn't even pick up on that. Cool. They do mention in the scene where the stargazing, there is just that one line that you've had a very rough year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that alone just implies that some stuff's gone down over that period of time. Um, this episode also didn't have a pre-credit sequence, which was unusual for a season premiere. We go straight into the opening credits, which I thought was very unusual the first time we watched it. I miss those opening credits. <laughs> I, I really like Evolution and Tenet's credits over Matt Smith's because I think the bass and the drums in it has more energy, and it's like, oh man, I'm really watching Doctor Who now. Well, Matt Smith kind of feels like I'm watching a wet nap. And the fact that they've shortened them so much as well. Mm-hmm. You don't have time to, to sit down and relax into the credits anymore. It's just it starts, they're gone. Whereas the whole the whole point of it is they should be, it gets you ready into the atmosphere for the show, which is the point of credits of, of television shows. That's why I really don't like now that TV shows don't have opening credits, because it's those that set the mood, especially on something like Doctor Who. Well, and that's I th- exactly right. I mean, these are a play on the Tom Baker credits going down the time corridor. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think the fact that you have the what 
has become iconic music. I mean, it's changed over the years, and they've added, you know, they've gone from the synthesized era of the Peter Davidson to the more orchestral scores that they've had with recent episodes. And the fact that that iconic score isn't there does sort of take away from the uh, the credit sequence sequence of the show. What did you all think of the score for this episode? Because it received a lot of complaints when it was first aired. A lot of reviewers singled out the score as being obtrusive and being too loud. Whereas I'm of the opinion that TV scores now are just wallpaper. Mm-hmm. And to have something that's bombastic was really nice. Well, I think... Yeah. The... <laughs> Go ahead. I was going to say, well, you know, the matron, when they turned the, uh, the track to be on or off, does a full-on Wiley Coyote... It, this episode yeah. is a romp. It's supposed to be ridiculous. Well, it's yeah, just but... in your face. Oh, I was dying <laughs> laughing. It was amazing. <laughs> uh, the, where It's basically purely the score where the Doctor and Donna are having their conversation across the room. <laughs> the, the music is perfect for that. The well, music's I... perfect throughout the episode, but mm. yeah, that is a highlight. The mime yeah. scene in the middle is hysterically funny. And apparently Tennant... Um, not Tennant... Uh, What's the name? Tate. Tate. Tate ad-libbed that in the shooting script, which is available for download as part of the writer's tale book. That is basically just Donna can do what she wants, and Catherine Tate improvised all that. Yeah, I heard that that Davies gave her a sort of loose script of what she should be saying, but she she, she improvised all the movements and everything, and it's just brilliant. Even though you you can't see, and well, unless you can lip read, you can kind of see what they're saying. She portrays what she did perfectly, and it's just a, a testament to Catherine Tate as an actress to be able to pull that off. And I think it sets up their friendship really well. Um, I was reading an uh, analyst that scene, and it was saying that most of the time, best friends can just look at each other and just know, and they don't even have to talk to each other. Um, and I think it really sets up how their relationship is going to be for the rest of the season. And the great thing about this scene is it's the one thing that they did wonderfully with the series was able to mix drama with comedy. And this is one of the best comedy beats that I've seen in a lot of the new Who stuff. Especially the fact that once Donna finishes what she's saying, she looks over and the entire time they've noticed them. It's they haven't yeah. been sneaking around at all. They've been completely, <laughs> obviously noticed by them, and it's yeah. it's what would happen. I mean, you expect you know you're going to be able to whisper and make all these gestures and all this, and no one's going to really notice you. And they turn that completely around, and it's it's what would happen in real life when two people are just waving at each other and you know thinking that's being unobtrusive, and no people see it. So that was a great comedy beat there. Uh, my favourite comedy beat in the episode is the bit where Donna goes into the bathroom of the woman she's interviewing and the little adipose is stood on the window ledge of the bathroom and yeah. waves at her and jumps out the window. <laughs> Tate's face when that jumps out the window is just gold. And, and that's another thing that uh, was very impressive. In, in Doctor Who, uh, from what Andy and I'm certain Dave and I remember... The old stuff, a lot of times when you got monsters, it was people in masks, as readily evidenced from last episode, City of Death, that were really sometimes pretty piss poor. The adipose they got, uh, especially for the computer animation, although the adipose were very simple things to animate, they really had a lot of character, and they did a really good job with the uh, computer animation for this. 
And you can get plush toys. <laughs> yeah, I, I, we've got two of them. I think we did. Yeah, we've got uh, over here. We've got some stores, the little specialty stores that sell UK stuff, and they've got tons of adipose over here. And I, I know they sell pretty well. But I guess. Uh... Yeah, we we used to. I work at a, in a mall, and I work in a shop. One of my mini jobs, and we have an entire Doctor Who wall, and one of them is like a little adipose thing. And they're only really one-off characters. They haven't really shown up again since then. Yeah, they did. So... They made a cameo. They made one hmm. little cameo. But yeah, all little the drunk they're like tribbles. Yeah, they're like tribbles. They've shown up in this one yeah. episode. We've never seen them again, but we don't need to. Cause I was kind of so hoping like, the little adipose would be carded for being too young to drink. Because <laughs> they're babies. <laughs> well, and that's what would the, the big ones look like? Yeah, that's the thing. We never get to see what the the big adipose look like, but that but that's fine. Yeah, that's a perfect uh, that's a perfect description. They are like tribbles. They're just these little things, and much like the Star Trek Trouble with Tribbles episode, the tribbles are the sort of antagonist, or the adipose are sort of the antagonist in the show, but they're not evil antagonists. They're just there doing their thing. It's the uh, it's the character of Miss Foster. Who's the anta- the real antagonist in the show, and uh, she's the one who's sort of running these things and trying to ba- basically, you know, bring forth this whole race of adipose so that she can repopulate this planet. Which l- let's go ahead and go into the character of Miss Foster, who I know she was supposed to have a sort of super nanny vibe, and uh, I don't know. In in the states, we had a couple of versions of super nanny. We had. I know we had Super Nanny and we had some other show that was about uh, a group of nannies that uh, deal with. But um, I, I got more of an Anne Robinson weakest link. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. Especially <laughs> the sort of very strict, very almost uh, BDSM sort of feel from her. Maybe See, I got a Margaret Thatcher vibe from her. <laughs> Oh dear God! I'm thinking of... My question is: Is she one of the adipose? Is that what the big adipose looks like? Because she said that she's going to go home, but she looks nothing like the baby adipose. But she is their wet nurse, so I'm wondering if she's from another planet, or if she's actually an adipose, and that's what a big adipose looks like. They can take on that form. She might just be hired help more than anything. Yeah, you know, I got she's, she that's was, the impression she was I Mary got. Poppins, yeah. Oh, yeah, same as Chris. I got she was a Mary Poppins thing. She she's was real quick to let her go. You know, <laughs> she's she's not one of them. Yes, both literally and figuratively, which is, you know, which is nice that in the end, uh, even though that she's been the antagonist throughout the entire show, uh, when she's being beamed away by the spaceship, the Doctor still actively tries to save her because he knows that he knows that the adipose parents are not going to let her stick around because that uh, incriminates them from breaking this uh, sort of law of the Shadow Proclamation. Now, here's another thing. The Shadow Proclamation is pretty much a uh, trope of the modern series. That was never really uh, touched on in the classic series of Doctor Who, if I'm thinking right. I don't remember it coming up before. I think it's Christopher Eccleston type thing. I think that's where it first popped up, as far yeah, as I remember. Shadow, the Shadow Proclamation is purely new series, but is mentioned quite a few times throughout mm. the new series. Okay. So, because I, I was trying to recall, you know, in any of the stuff that I'd seen before, if they'd ever mentioned anything. I know they've talked about, uh, you know, Dark Guardians and stuff like that, but 
I didn't know. Uh, the, supposedly, the Shadow Proclamation, from what I've researched, is sort of an intergalactic police force. That's mm. sort of... um, the Ninth Doctor definitely mentions it in Rose when they're taking out the Autons, and I think Matt Smith's mentioned it once. But I can't he remember. Mentioned it like once or a few couple times. Yeah, I think in the in the opener of the Eleventh Hour, there. Uh, what what wasn't the uh, person who was supposed to? Well, no, because we'll learn that the person who was supposed to be locked up is actually yeah, spoilers. Um, um, one of the things I what do you think of the structure of this one? Because again, I had a look at the initial reviews of this episode before we recorded this, and a lot of people, including ardent fans of the show, have been very critical of Russell T. Davis and particularly his writing. And I agree with some of the criticisms of his writing, but I think this one, the structure of this one is so tight. Just mm. the little things like Donna absentmindedly says, can I have that 18 karat gold necklace at the beginning? <laughs> and at the end, that plays into the finale. Without that, the Doctor can't save people's lives. And the way he's just set up this entire episode, I think, mm. is a textbook example of how you write a good TV script. Now, knowing Davis... Again, if you've read the writer's tale book, he was always on the last minute. He always waited till the script was due tomorrow before he would sit down and write it. So if he was capable of cooking this up at the last minute in such a tight, concise way, that I refuse to accept any of the criticism that he's a bad writer. He may occasionally take a little bit of sentiment. He may occasionally go for like an easy explanation. Because by his own admission, he's not a science fiction writer. But I think this episode is just top notch. I think this is one of the best premieres they've done other than the 11th hour. What do you all think? No, I, I agree. Um, I think. Oh, go ahead, Hope. Occasionally, come on. So I, <laughs> right. I do not like Russell T. Davis. I, I like side separate episodes, but for overarching plots, I think he's just terrible. I think Martha does 20 million times better. But did you not think he think he did a great job in this episode of oh, yeah. seeding the entire three season? Singular episodes, well, um, and and this is one of them. I think that this episode, as you mentioned, is nice and tight. It's really well written. It's brilliant. The, the and I, I like the fact that he left it open for the actors to improv on their own and bring in their own comedy. I, I think if he would have written specifically, and then Donna moves their hands and she makes little faces, it wouldn't have been as strong. So that, I, I mean, that is a good point that he trusted his actors that much. I kind of have to agree. Stephen, I think we're also sort of biased on the fact that Stephen Moffat does have this ability to write these overarching uh, series-long or at least uh, season-long scripts that have little hints that tie into separate episodes and build upon themselves. But uh, Davies really did a good job in there of setting the rest of the season up and planting things in there, which you usually would attribute to a sort of Moffat writing style. And uh, to, to his credit, uh, Davies can write some really good episodes. Uh, most people think when Russell T. Davies writes the shows that they're also kind of fluff and throwaway. This is not the case. Another episode uh, I would, uh, I would attribute to being a really great episode of him would be, I think, later in this season, the Midnight episode, which I think mm -hmm. Davies wrote as well. So, uh, oh, yeah. Actually, I'm not sure about right. that. Shag and I were talking about that in my last Doctor Who special. I don't, I don't, I don't think he wrote Midnight. Yeah. 
I, I shall think Google that's it the, for you. Internet, internet, help us out. I think that's the weakest episode of the season. Really? That's the it, most brilliant episode of the season. Oh, God, I was just bored out of my mind watching that one. I think that's like the only episode I've actively disliked. Oh, no, no, it is Russell T. Davis. You're correct. I'm sorry. Okay, no problem. I killed the conversation. I'm trying not to sneeze, sorry. <laughs> no, an angel just flew over. That's a southern saying, I'm going to be quiet now. <laughs> it means when everybody goes quiet, the angels fly over and wish us good luck. Oh, That's very nice. I hope so. <laughs> Let's hope the angels don't fly over. Hey, I just want to, something I do want to know is if Donna ever found out that Shia was the one that accidentally killed that lady... And if she ever, if the doctor ever kind of tuned her in on that, and how did she feel that she accidentally killed a person? Well, she didn't kill them. She doesn't technically kill them. She only kind of alerts them that someone's seen the adipose. She activates it. One comes out. Then they say, oh, someone's seen one. We need to kind of get rid of her. But no, but that person vanished. They're no more. Like, her life ended and became adipose. It was almost like a reincarnation thing, so she stopped being one being and became other beings. But that first being is now gone and will never come back. No, I just mean that um, uh, Mrs. Foster turns it on once she she actively says, no, we need to kill her, activate full parthenogenesis to kill the woman. It's just Donna's only causes the first one to come out. Yeah, I, I don't think you can blame Donna for that person's mm-hmm. death. No. I mean, you can argue that if Donna hadn't gone and interviewed her, then maybe that adipose wouldn't have activated. So indirectly, yeah. but she didn't cause it. And I, I, I don't think it would be fair to lay that guilt on Donna. But if she hadn't taken the necklace originally and hadn't brought it out and started playing with it, then they would have never had to kill her then to cover up. True, but I don't but... think you can say that Donna killed her. It was an accidental what? thing. But they were probably <laughs> planning to kill her anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, they did kind of have to get the uh, idea in of what happens when they do the full parthenogenesis thing, because the entire uh, the entire drama of the last half of the show, or the last third of the show, is the fact that the Doctor is going to have to save these one million Londoners from being from the same thing happening. This so. They had to kind of get the it, – it, it would have either happened with Donna or the guy that the doctor was interviewing, one of them having to go through this full parthenogenesis thing to set up the uh, drama at the end of the show. So uh, the fact that it happened to Donna rather than the doctor is – I don't know whether it works better because the doctor has had you know failures before, and you know it would be more acceptable, I think, for the doctor to do this, but – I think they needed to at least have that visual there so that you could uh, see the uh, drama and see the what was going on uh, that the Doctor would have to save everyone at the end of the show. I do have to wonder, though, does anyone think that had Mrs. Foster been honest about the entire thing, that she might have actually got more people in on this if she just told them that, yes, we're planning to create an, an alien species here out of your fat? Um, oh, yeah, that's because... not right up. Yeah, because it's it's a win-win situation. Until mm-hmm. that, what Hope just mentioned happens, what the Miss Foster is doing is genuine. These people will genuinely lose weight by taking these pills, and she will get she, what she wants, which is the reignition of the adipose people. So yeah, up until that point, she's not actually a bad guy. 
even the doctor himself says that's not a bad idea, you know. No, I agree. There, that's that's one of the thing is it makes it somewhat ambiguous, and it's not until that uh, Miss Foster decides that we need to do this uh, very quickly and get it over with. If she would have just played it low and let people take these pills and lose however many kilos and actually slim down and let let it become sort of a worldwide phenomenon and then collected all the adipose back, I don't think there would have been a real problem with it. It was just the fact that she decided to do the entire destruction of the people and killing off people, which you know, caused her to turn into the episode's big bad. And that was the doctor's fault. If the doctor had left her alone... Yeah, like like I said, the doctor and that meddling Donna Noble. It depends if she had planned to kill them in the first place. Well, and that's that's kind of the thing you have to wonder. Did did they need that many adipose that quickly? Was there a timeline? Was there uh, did she need to have them quickly? You know, that's kind of one of those things that's sort of left up to your imagination. But I, I guess I don't think so because she was she talked about in the opening of the episode like we're about to take our next next step and then expand to the entire nation. So I think it was supposed to be a long form thing. Yeah, because like Hope says, she does say at the moment we're only in London. So you get the idea that next they're going to roll it out through the rest of the UK, and then the next step would be the world, presumably. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because in in Turn Left, which is the episode where Donna follows the path that the Doctor had died and she never met up with him again, they have gone to America rather than coming to England. Because England's practically destroyed. (laughs) Yes, England, yeah, the Titanic crashed, didn't it? Because they yeah. don't know to stop it. Yeah, that was a good one. Though. I enjoyed that one. So yeah, this looks like it was a long-term plan, and by hurrying it up like this, she essentially cocked it up, which led to her own death. So essentially, the doctor is to blame for uh, Miss Foster's death, and perhaps the uh, the well, I guess he saved people, but you know, he also let people be fat. So thanks, doctor. <laughs> There's also the thing at the end, he does try to save her. If she listened to him, she wouldn't be dead. Granted, we wouldn't have got that great Wile E. Coyote beat, but... Mm -hmm. I wonder what uh, Miss Foster's actual game was, though. Like, we we know that she was making a power play and trying to get into their good graces, but I kind of wish we had more about, like, why she was doing all that. Like, did she originally lose her planet, and that was the only job she could get at the un- alien unemployment line like because in the up until that alien beam tractor beam thing you know she seems generally cold evil and calculating but when she's hovering there and talking to the doctor i think that was the first time she was really genuine because she really does think that she's about to start a new life so i really wanted to know more about like why she was doing all this um i, I don't think we're supposed to think about that in this episode this goes back to some of russell t davis's flaws as a writer he does write romps that move along so fast that in the course of watching it you're entertained but then when you sat down like we are here analyzing it there's lots of little things that you can poke holes at oh but yes but that's the whole point about fandoms um i I just i I talked three hours last night about the flaws of once upon a time and it's the writers of lost and they're starting to fall into that lost trope so if you're going to write it you have to keep in mind that someone's going to sit down and actually think about it yeah somebody's going to do a podcast about it at some point 
Yeah, like we're especially in this age of technology where you can go on something like Tumblr and people will break down the tiniest little scenes and just be like, What is this? Because it's we have all this information at our fingertips and we're all pretty bored and want to go online <laughs> and do stuff, so uh, my other problem with this one, there was an over-reliance on the sonic screwdriver. Well, and that's been sort of a trope, especially of the Matt Smith stuff, is the sonic screwdriver seems to be the the end-all, do-all thing. It's, it, it's basically been turned into a magic wand. You want it to open doors, it opens doors. You want it to be a device to disable people, it disables people. You want it to be essentially a medical tricorder, it does that. And... Uh, I liked, and when we get back into some of the earlier episodes, I like the fact that, especially in like the Sylvester McCoy episode that I watched that you recommended a while back, that the sonic screwdriver is nowhere to be found, and they did away with that, and it makes the doctor actually have to use his brain a bit more. Uh, the sonic screwdriver has become kind of a crutch, and I like the fact that the doctor doesn't have to always rely on that fact. He doesn't have to rely on this sort of MacGuffin device that'll get him out of anything. So, yeah, I can really have the counter MacGuffin though, the deadlock on the building, etc., etc. Always they they bring that in in this. Um, Anytime he's not allowed to use the sonic screwdriver, they always say, "Oh, it's deadlocked. Can't use it." Sorry. Yeah, well, no, that's that's exactly true. In order to counteract the whole uh, Uh, MacGuffin of the sonic screwdriver, all they have to do is put up the counter one that's saying, "Yeah, no, you can't use it." So. Let's be honest, though, all it really is, like, for the most part, it's just opening and closing doors. I mean, he needs to have something, because as a viewer, we need to get information, and aside from him taking three hours to interrogate somebody, you know, it's not Star Trek, he doesn't have the tricorder, he's got the sonic screwdriver, all right, let me just buzz this person and see what's wrong with them. Yeah, he does kind of use it, just bust locks a lot, doesn't he? Yeah, it's a a narrative device, I think. It doesn't really bother me. It well, doesn't bother me either, but I mean, I've only really seen New Who, so it's always been there. Well, and the fact that he needs a sort of science fiction-y phaser slash tricorder thing, it, it, the fact that the Doctor is a person whose entire tenant is nonviolence and trying not to kill, yeah. uh, the fact that he has a sort of thing that's not necessarily a weapon, but can be used to in sort of a defensive mode, as well as, you know, a lockpick thing as well, is kind of nice. And it also sort of satisfies the American side of the aisle, who we need uh, our character to have something that's shooty. We need to have someone blasting things. And so it, it, kind, of, it kind of gives us that sort of feel, because if, if we don't have things blowing up or shooting, you know, uh, we get bored after like five minutes. <laughs> I don't see how you get bored in this world. It's so fast-paced, even with the sonic screwdriver shooting stuff. And, uh, and there's, there's uh, guys with guns in this one for you. That's true. We do have we do have actual peril in this, then that there are armed <laughs> guards in here who basically, if they wanted to, could have just gunned down Donna and, uh, Donna and the Doctor at a moment's notice. How did they shit open the door, though? That doesn't work. It does not work that, like that. <laughs> Well, actually, when I was watching that, I thought they were just going to, you know, shoot it, <laughs> shoot like the silhouette of a figure, and then just run through it. But <laughs> it kind of would have worked for that episode. That, that would have been great, actually. But I guess mm-hmm. we're, you know, uh, if you guys, uh, you know, I really can't think of anything else. I mean, this was a great episode, 
and it was a it was a wonderful season opener. Um, I'm glad that they brought a character in to the show who's who's a match for the Doctor, but isn't you know who has uh, feelings for the Doctor, but it's not that sort of romantic feelings. I'm glad yeah. they kind of got away from that uh, because that was sort of really not what hindered the first few seasons, but just sort of, you know, made it feel a bit different. I'm glad they got to the more companion role of the companion rather than the love interest of the companion. Uh, really great season opener and a really great episode all around. Final thoughts, anyone? Um, well, yeah, if we if we just have a look at the ending before we, we wrap up. Oh, yeah. The ending sets up the season. And you've got that wonderful scene in the piss-strewn Cardiff alleyway. Um, have you heard David Tennant talk about filming the scene with Donna at the end? No. It's next door to a nightclub in Ooh. Cardiff. So they're filming this scene at sort of like two, three o'clock in the morning. They're up against the clock because it's supposed to be a nighttime scene. So they have to wait. They can't let it go daylight or they have to come back the next day and shoot it again. The alleyway is full of people taking a piss who've just stumbled out of the um, the nightclub. You've got people in the queue for the nightclub, which is apparently just round the corner from where they're filming, going, hey, it's the doctor, doctor, while they're trying to concentrate on filming. And he said this was one of the worst night shooting they've ever done. In addition, if you look very carefully, it vacillates between absolutely pouring down and not raining at all in between the scenes, in between them talking to each other. So he said they had to navigate that. So you've got people just at a camera shot holding tarpaulins over the actors' heads so, you, so they're not getting wet, so that the scenes match up. He said this was a nightmare to film. But in terms of dialogue, it's a great scene. You've got the wonderful bit at the end where he's opening up about Martha and he's telling her that coming out with him is, is a very dangerous thing and she really needs to think about what she's done and he just wants a mate and she completely misunderstands <laughs> what he says. No, yeah, that is, I, I completely forgot that. That is brilliant. The fact that they take this dramatic scene that's dealing with the doctor's loss and his feeling of loneliness and turn it into a great comedy beat. And the fact that it also sets up the fact that Donna's not going to be a romantic lead. She's going to be a companion. She's going to be someone who's there for him emotionally, but not for there for him romantically. And I like that about the character. Me too. Words out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that she was repulsed by it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and when she actually describes him as just a, a lanky streak of person, she does that, that hand gesture. Like there's yeah. nothing to you. Yeah, it was brilliant, absolutely fantastic piece of acting from Catherine Tate. Uh, I agree. I I didn't even know that about the about the last scene there, but yeah, that's brilliant. It it really is. Uh, also, did you know the scene with Rose wasn't in the episode when they premiered it for the press? Yes, in Ooh. fact, I read something about that that they kept that out simply because yeah. they wanted to make that that sort of a surprise and. What do you guys think about that? I mean, uh, do you think it's a good thing that they brought Rose back? Do you think it was sort of just stunt casting or? It goes what? with the season, though. I mean, it's not the mm -hmm. last time we're going to see her pop up before she's reintroduced, mm -hmm. you know. And I guess looking at it from a narrative standpoint, I guess they kind of had to. If you're going to finish out David Tennant's run, you got to kind of finish 
Rose's story as well. So that's where yeah, it's going. Yeah, well, Chris, what Chris says is the, the Tent Davis was wrapping up his run. They all knew this was going to be his last season. And Tennant said this was going to be his last season. And then they did the specials. And then Tennant vacillated on whether he wanted to leave or not. There's a wonderful chapter, again, in The Writer's Tale. If you've not read this book, I really do recommend it. There's a wonderful chapter there where Russell T. Davis is holding out on writing the last scene of the last special. And Stephen Moffat is, by extension, being held up on writing the first scene of the first episode because Tennant just keeps changing his mind as to whether he wants to leave or not. And basically what happens is, um, Davis writes that Moffat has a meeting with him where he basically says to him, look, David, I need a decision by Saturday because we're going to start looking for another doctor. And if I don't need to do that, I need to restructure my first script and Russell needs to restructure the end of his last script or it's not going to work. So we need a decision. And Tennant ultimately decided to, to bail out. But there's that wonderful there's, it's it's. It's one of the few times in the book you get the impression that Russell's pissed off with Tennant because you get the idea that if he knew Tennant wasn't going to leave, he wouldn't have left. So the fact that he does keep doing this back and forth leads to a bit of tension between the two of them. And you never get that in the rest of it. He does mention that he's annoyed sometimes, but you never get that he's, met, that he's annoyed with his lead actor. It always seemed like those two got on really well. And I just thought that was really interesting because if you think about it, the entire fourth season leads into the specials, which leads into Tennant regenerating. And if Tennant had decided at the last minute that he wasn't going to leave, essentially the, the entire lead up of this series and the four specials would have been squandered. I mean, it even comes like in the last line he has as the character. Yeah. Yeah. Which came from his vacillating about leaving. That's where Russell T. Davis got that from, because he didn't have a last line for the Doctor. He didn't know what he was going to write. In true Davis fashion, he's, he tends to sit down and he writes and he just goes and he doesn't have it planned out. And then he will go back later in the rewriting and structure it and put little seeds in and stuff like that and know what he's going to do. But as a rule, he said throughout the enti his entire run of Doctor, he very rarely knew where he was going when he sat down to write a script. And I've killed the conversation again. Sorry. No. <laughs> Everyone's intently listening to you. No, we're all just fascinated by this. I, uh, I'm. Uh, this is one of the reasons I'm glad that I had you on because uh, because you are such a fan of Doctor Who. And plus, to be honest, the people in the UK are far more exposed to this. I mean, you grew up with this. In, in America, I don't know about you, but we had to search out Doctor Who. Uh, it was played on maybe one channel, and sometimes that channel would play it at different times. I don't know about uh, you, Chris, but I got my stuff on PBS, and for a PBS. while they uh, just put the old Doctor Who at times that you would never expect it to be, yeah. and you had to actually try and search it out. So the fact that it was pretty much ubiquitous over there uh, gives you a, a much greater knowledge and a much greater insight in the whole show. I mean, but it's starting to shift, though, um, especially with the new Who and it becoming more popular now, because it's now really easy to find Doctor Who and merchandise and everything. I mean, um, it for me, it sometimes runs on, runs on Sci-Fi. It's always on BBC America, <laughs> always. 
Um, but even just our exposure to merchandise before, I mean, even just a few years ago when I first started getting into Doctor Who, I only really saw merchandise at conventions. Now, like the shop I work at, we have My Little Pony shirts with Doctor Who's on it. I mm -hmm. mean, and it's it's infiltrating our shows. Like it's there's a David Tennant pony in in uh, My Little Pony, which is now in the comics where he has a companion running around with him, a pony companion. And then even just past that, like we saw everything from like shirts. I, I think it's so much easier to get now because it's growing. And just uh, like a month or two ago, for the first time ever, Doctor Who was on the cover TV Guide, and they even made a big deal about it being the first time it's ever been on the, the cover of TV Guide. That's true. It's it is good that the Doctor Who is becoming a bit more per pervasive over here. And that we're actually getting that. And I also credit BBC America. I wanted to mention this last episode. Uh, for those of you who don't know, or for those of you who do get BBC America over here in the States, they are airing the new shows. I think it's in March they're going to be starting the new season as well. But uh, BBC America is also celebrating this 50th anniversary by uh, airing some of the classic shows. Uh, I, last... watched, I saw that. I watched my first William Hartnell episode. I was like, this is so good! Actually, and uh, I hope we get to some William Hartnell episodes later in the year, because although Hartnell and the series as a whole was very different in those filmings, and The Doctor was a di very different character from what we uh, know today, there were still a lot of elements in the show that uh, we still see up to the show today. The whole idea of fixed points in time, uh, the whole idea of the Doctor sort of being a romantic, because even in this episode, which uh, the BBC aired, the Aztecs, the Doctor has a relationship with a uh, this Aztec woman, and in the end of the show, you see that he's kind of affected by that. So uh, I hope that we'll eventually get to bring in a lot more of the classic stuff, as well as the new stuff throughout the year. But... Um, does anyone have anything else that they want to talk about about the show? Um, Which? I, I thought that the ending, to, to jump back, because I had a point I didn't get to say it, um, I thought the rose was actually essential in the ending of this episode. Yeah, it does um, It does set up uh, what's going to be coming along you know, throughout because, the season, especially the season finale. Yeah, because it, it would have been a totally different feeling at the end of the episode. If Rose was in there, because if they just cut it off there, it'd be like, oh, you know, the adventure of the week. Hurrah. But it was just enough of a hook to make you keep watching. Um, because for me, I didn't know at the time, really. I kind of knew who Rose was when I saw this episode. And then I went back and I started watching 9 and 10 for 10's first season. So I had more of an idea of who she was. Um, but at least it, for someone who didn't know, and if they were just coming fresh to Doctor Who, you would know that this person was important. And it really did set up the pace for the rest of the season, because then you'd have all the little Easter eggs where you're just staring in the background, where, waiting for her to arrive. Final thoughts? Love, love Wilfred. He's the man. <laughs> I love Wilfred. I was sitting the whole, every episode, I'm like, oh man, I hope he gets to go on an adventure. And then he finally does. I hope we get yeah. to see him again for the 50th. That would be cool. I, I want to see him with uh, Brian um, Brian Williams. Oh yes, yeah. We'll we'll definitely have to get some of the uh, Matt Smith Doctor in because uh, the relationship with you know um, Rory and his dad was one of the things that was really touching in 
the uh, final episode with the pawn. So, and uh, right. did uh, I know this is kind of off topic, but did anyone see the uh, the script for the unfilmed thing that they were supposed to do for the uh, final episode of the pawns episode, the one with the uh, angels in Manhattan? It broke my heart. I cried. It, it I haven't quite was. gotten there yet. It, no. They did. Uh, they did basically storyboard script, and they had actually uh, Arthur Darvel come in and read the alliance for it. And yes, uh, it, it'll break your heart uh, again. It it was so good because I because me and Shag originally talked about how there was no closure for Brian, um, and then like two days after we recorded, they premiered that, and I sent it to Shag, and he just I think his words back to me was, "Why would you do that to me?" <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, I, I really definitely want to jump in on some of your Matt Smith episodes, because for continuation issues and continuity issues, I have a problem going from Tennant to Smith character-wise about the Doctor. Especially in The Lodger, that's what I see really the most. So if you ever do The Lodger, I would love to jump into that. Definitely. We'll see about doing that. Uh, yeah, but I, like I said, aside from a few episodes that are coming up, in fact, next week, or next not week next month i think the plans we have are to cover uh another classic episode with talons of wang chiang another doctor who episode another obviously doctor who another tom baker episode and then uh moving forward in april we're going to be covering um uh the death of the doctor from the sarah jane episodes or the sarah jane adventures and also covering uh school reunion from doctor who from the uh, second season uh, simply because I think for most of us, our favorite companion is uh, Sarah Jane Smith. And unfortunately, April was the month that uh, Elizabeth Sladen passed away, and we wanted to do something to sort of celebrate her character. But after that, we're kind of up in the air as to what to cover, and we're willing to get suggestions. And we're also willing, if you are a, a podcaster and would like to come on the show and uh, talk about Doctor Who, we'd love to have you on. Uh, but... I only request. I, I think we, we need to do episode episodes. Oh. Oh, go on. Sorry. Oh, uh, it's just because like there's a general is I, I I see it a lot online that most people because of Tennant's pretty face tend to skip Eccleston, and 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 like he actually gets a really bad rap for only being there for a season, and there's been actually a big movement online to like people like you need to remember Eccleston, and there's been people like encouraging people to go see Eccleston because it does set up the rest of the season, and it does set up all the the new Doctor, and I, I really love Eccleston. Christopher Eccleston's my that. second favourite Doctor. Huh. Today's Christopher Eccleston's birthday. Happy, oh, birthday, happy birthday, Christopher Yay! Eccleston. He's on, at Thor right now. <laughs> uh, I would only say we need to do a scurry one. We've done two comedy episodes. That's true. Well, uh, Wang Chiang, if, if I'm remembering, that's got some... It's got some dramatic moments, but yeah, if, if anyone has suggestions, please go over to the site at uh, forumforgeeks.com, uh, go to the Two True Freaks link, and uh, click on the little thing. Chris actually set us up a, a little sub-forum for Who True Freaks, so if you have uh, ideas for episodes, go ahead and go there and post them. Also, you know, go to the Two True Freaks website uh, for downloading the shows, uh, plus uh, I might as well plug it here. We'll uh, put in... Uh, if you go to Two True Freaks, you can also click on an Amazon button at the top and uh, go to Amazon if you're doing your shopping. It helps out the show and makes sure that uh, 
episodes uh the hootroo freaks uh we'll keep on going for a while so yeah and if, if uh just to jump in on that because i did this in my last show if you would like um we'll we'll sponsor you and we'll talk about you we'll say your name and and stuff like that and if you want to specifically be in a certain show say if you want to be mentioned in hootroo freaks opposed to like hope of all trades let us know and we'll make sure that you get mentioned in that specific show oh we will kiss your ass so hard <laughs> give us money yeah so uh, uh if anyone has anything else anyone have anything they want to say final notes final thoughts anything i'm gonna go back to bed <laughs> <laughs> that's a good final thought um right, next time around we're gonna be doing hair Next time around, we're going to be covering uh, Talons and Wang Chiang. Uh, who knows who will be on the episode? We've got uh, we've got plans for maybe a certain enemy of Hope to be on the uh, show. Uh, Hope's arch nemesis uh, Shag might be on the show. So <gasps> I yeah. love talking with Shag. Actually, uh, we have we were going, we have a show coming up whenever he actually gets free time, and we're covering Midnight and Dreamlift. Okay, well that'll be awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and definitely check out Hope's show. Hope will be a good companion to what we're doing up here. Huh, see what I did, companion. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, definitely thanks everyone for coming on the show. Thanks everyone for listening, and uh, I guess we will catch you next time on another episode of Who True Freaks. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Awesome. You can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. Anytime you plan to visit Amazon.com, please be aware that if you use the Amazon.com link located on our website, www.2TrueFreaks.Libson.com, Two True Freaks will receive a referral bonus for any items you purchase. There is absolutely no additional cost to you whatsoever for doing this. All proceeds go directly toward keeping new episodes of all your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated podcasts rolling and it really helps us out. So please, use our Amazon.com link anytime you plan to visit Amazon.com. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. <laughs>
Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. Libsyn is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Join our forum at forumforgeeks.com, where you can discuss all of the shows on our feed with us and your fellow listeners. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. And hey, you can friend me, Scott Gardner, on Facebook too. My name is spelled S-C-O-T-T-G-A-R-D-N-E-R. You can friend me on Facebook too, if you can find me. Now available, Two True Freaks t-shirts. See our website for details. Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. You can check that out at www.comicspodcast.com, where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. We are also members of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? Thanks for listening, and join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks. And this is your Uncle Don saying good night. Good night, little kids. Good night. We're off? Good. Well, that ought to hold the little bastards. <laughs>